Welcome to the Triathlon Blueprint podcast mini-series. In this episode, we have the privilege of speaking to highly accomplished nutritionist, academic and podcast host, Mickey Willardin. Mickey is a distinguished nutritionist with a Bachelor of Science in Human Nutrition and Bachelor of Physical Education from the University of Otago. In 2011, she obtained a PhD specialising in health and productivity in the New Zealand workforce. Mickey is a prolific podcaster, co-host of Fitter Radio and the creator of Monday Matters, a fat loss programme. She actively contributes to the digital and media platforms bridging the gap between science and practical health solutions. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Alrighty, hey Mickey, uh, thank you so much for coming on and I'm sure some of the listeners are already familiar with your work and uh, your expertise in the nutrition space. Um, I know personally for me, um, there's a lot of friends and athletes who have consulted with you on multiple occasions around different topics. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, hey, firstly, I know we've briefly talked about it off air, but congratulations last weekend on the Auckland Marathon. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, amazing. First, Matt, um, thank you so much for asking me to be a guest. I feel super honoured because um, I really rate what you do and the content that you put out there with regards to um, that whole sort of learning and education piece and you're very transparent as to all of the stuff that you do which I think is really great um and yes thank you to the Auckland Marathon um uh shout out so the race itself was so I had a basically I'm training for Tarawera 100 but I knew that after I had multiple months of not being able to run this year I knew that if I'd sort of hit start on the training for Tarawera too quickly I'd probably either pull up injured or burnt out or just um uh you know not really in a uh feeling that motivated to do it so I thought cool let's kick in and do a seven week marathon build um which you know I've been running I think that might have been my 16th marathon or 17th or something like that so it's not my first rodeo so I sort of thought hey I you know I should be fine I completely managed my expectations around how I felt I could go. And you know what, Matt? I um, managed to do what I set out to achieve, albeit as we were discussing with a tight calf that meant I had to run flat-footed for 20K. So so actually, um, physically speaking, I think that really did actually put a bit of a handbrake on how physically um, uh, uh taxing it was so I actually don't feel too bad um other than the calf still feels a bit tight needs a bit of work oh congratulations it was um I think as I said I think you guys got a pretty lucky window for the event itself because there's a bit of cycling coming through later in the day so um yeah hey congratulations and I've been you know you've obviously had a bit of time off running and it was fantastic to see you um go through and and what was an exceptional finish time really um so so well done just an awesome segue probably is Personally, for, for that event, how did you feel that and what did you do? I've, I read some stuff online as to um, you took a, a number of gels, but yeah, what was your fueling strategy around that for you in particular? Yeah, great question, Matt. So as I said, I've done multiple marathons and over the years learned what sort of works in terms of particularly um, the GI, the gastrointestinal distress that can occur. So, you know, a lot of people... Um, and, you know, come to me and they 
They talk about having to have, you know, giving up three hours before the race so they can have their rolled oats or their toast and jam and giving it enough time to sort of go through their system so they can get rid of it on the other end. And, you know, so you're not stuck with like runner's diarrhea or having to use a portaloo. Um, uh, and I just know for me that anything huge, anything large in my stomach, so an actual meal pre-marathon just does not work for me. And I, because I run the risk of, you know, 10K in having to find a portaloo. And I have to say it has happened to me before in 2010 in Christchurch, I was going for my sub three and prior to the marathon start, I had uh, oats with dried apricots and uh, those supermarket white buns with jam and orange juice. And to end, I had a gel every half hour because Schofield, we both know Schofield, he told me that uh, carbs were my limiting factor and I just had to get more of them in. <laughs> so <laughs> so I tried and holy crap, literally um, at about 27K, I was like, I really need a portaloo. And I ran past one, Matt, couldn't, and I thought, I'll just get the next one, could not find the next one. And unfortunately, I had to pull the pin at 40K because uh I did not want to cross the finish line with the classic runner's diarrhea, which looking back is a bit stupid because really now everyone, you know, as a runner, GI issues are almost par for the course. Gosh, yeah. I'm quite long-winded. Um, so <laughs> after that experience and a few sort of hit and misses, I just go with not a lot of fuel in the tank in the morning. And you know what? This is a really good uh, time to sort of just highlight that the important thing is making sure that your pre-race nutrition plan isn't just the morning of, but it's actually the week of leading up into the race because your goal is to is to um, restock your muscle carbohydrate stores or your muscle glycogen stores. And you're not doing anything with your muscle glycogen stores on race morning at all. Like nothing's touching them. And in fact, it's that sort of, the week where you taper so you're not doing as much training, so you're not depleting them, and you're having pretty normal food, so you're sort of restocking over the week with a couple of strategic other things that you put into place in the couple of days leading up, which we can discuss. But that in itself, sort of, if you, as long as you're sort of going to bed on, on let's say, set, uh, Saturday night for a Sunday race, knowing that you've um, upped your carbs slightly, you've not trained to the same extent because you've had that taper, you can be pretty confident that your muscle glycogen stores are going to be totally fine in race morning. And it's just your liver glycogen stores which need a bit of topping um, up in race morning, albeit you know, a few sprints, that'll sort of kickstart that um, muscle glycogen stores to be able to be converted to glucose anyway. So if you really can't stomach any food, it's still not the end of the world. So um, so I went into that race with coffee and, uh, you know, a, like half a banana and a couple of bites of protein bar just to, I, I think I felt a tiny bit hungry, but um, mm. just to sort of have something to eat really. And then I was able to go to the bathroom prior to the race and did what I needed to do. Um, and uh, and then throughout the race, I had a gel at 8, 16, uh, 24 and 33 Ks. And, and that was it. Um, mm. Albeit that's actually 
enough as well I think uh for someone of my size and of my ability like I like I any more I might have run the risk of that GI distress that we're trying to avoid uh, that's awesome information I mean the few I've got a few questions to that first is yeah. how do you know and and I think it's probably worth you explaining how do you know that that is the protocol that works best for you so so rather than going you've got your race on whatever it is and, and, and it's a more of a trial so are you practicing that uh well ahead of the race so when it does come to race week you know exactly what your protocol is and what's what's going to work as you talked about you've had some some experience there of what has worked and what hasn't worked but are you specifically doing that in your training as well um and then second of all which I think you talked about is the whole overeat thing as well and the tendency to go the night before typically and have a heavier meal it might be heavier carbohydrate based on the on the basis that you've got a performance to put out the the next day as well as is a really key thing that that sort of uh yeah was highlighted there for me is to that's actually not doing a heck of a lot from what we think it is yeah yeah great questions Matt so first and foremost um personally that's been trial and error as you've um highlighted for me and I um and what I say to so for the long runs that I did in my build-up so I did um three longer runs of between sort of 30 uh 30 and 34k um I had a couple of gels on those runs I didn't go overboard I didn't I don't when you sort of have the experience of at my age and, and people in my age bracket, you know, if you've been running for 30 years and you've been doing marathons for 20 of them, you don't necessarily need to practice per se, unless it's always gone wrong and now you're finding a new solution. Um, so so I just really popped in what I could. Um, I popped in carbs in the runs where I knew I needed to sort of maintain that glucose in the bloodstream to help me with that, uh, the intensity of those runs because they were at marathon sort of pace for for a part but what I would say to athletes is you is to in the build of your in your marathon or or your Ironman or or ultra run campaign you sort of want to practice your race nutrition once a month once every three weeks depending on your timeline so you are getting familiar with what's going in how you're feeling whether or not you're tolerating it and and also what I suggest to them as well is don't just go in there with a plan A, like you want plan B and plan C as well when it comes to your nutrition, particularly mm. the longer the event, because the longer the event, the more that fatigue sets in and the more that, um, and therefore the intensity ramps up to the extent that you can't really simulate a lot of that in training even if you know no matter how hard you try like a race is is almost always going to be different from um from your sort of training simulations so you want to have plans a b and c already in your head and of course practice on plan a but know that you've got something else in your back pocket if plan a doesn't go to plan and the reason that i suggest this to be uh oh the reason i suggest this is so you don't lose confidence when you're out there in your actual key event. Because when you lose confidence, that's actually way worse than when things go wrong with your nutrition. Does that make sense? 
A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's the, it's the, the factor of what the head's doing. If something doesn't go to plan um, rather than it all being over, there, there's a yes. plan B and then the head thinking, well, actually I've got a plan C too, um, yes. which is, a, which is positive, right? Rather than just the one plan that doesn't work. And then we go, oh crap. That's exactly right. And so I probably don't need to spell it out, but plans B and C generally are less carbohydrate per hour because what has gone wrong is that your stomach hasn't tolerated what you're trying to put in you know for whatever reason that's that's generally sort of the way that it goes um and the reason I suggest that we don't go out every weekend and do this Matt which I probably don't need to tell you or your listeners but I'll just mention it anyway is that part of your and you as an endurance athlete is training your body to utilize its own fuel stores in a addition to supplying it with glucose that you need on the day you know like we get those uh, endurance adaptations when we are fasted from glucose um, in the initial phase of our training and in that in those sort of longer training uh, training sessions now the longer the training session the less important it's sort of is to be to have you know no glucose going in like I think it is it's definitely a feature of um, say a 90 to two hour session if you can go out and you can still have calories like protein and fat calories but you are better off just having those protein and fat calories and foregoing the glucose so we can upregulate those enzymes uh, that are required to help enhance those endurance adaptations if you go out every single weekend and you're putting in a gel every half hour, every 45 minutes, and you start out with a ton of glucose on board, then your body never gets that opportunity to realize those adaptations. So, I mean, obviously it depends on where you are in your training campaign and, and uh, how, how long your sort of sessions are. But that is another reason why I, I am not in favor of practicing your race nutrition every single weekend, not to mention how expensive that would be. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're speaking the same language here and it's it's reassuring to hear that. And, you know, the whole, um, yeah, using another fuel source rather than uh, glycogen for, for energy expenditure is is essentially bread and butter to staying out there longer at a more desirable pace or intensity or trying to trying to pull that, that lift that bar up. So, yeah. Um, yeah, just, I mean, going into that around, it's probably quite quite good sort of segue again to talk about around the digestibility of carbohydrates. And you talk about not necessarily just going heavy on those the night before. Um, you're talking more yes. race week. And then, yeah, I'd just love to talk to you more about that in terms of, you, you know, we, we hear the Sam Longs and they're going, well, I'm pouring down 100 and, 140 grams of carbohydrates an hour and, um, does that mean that Joe Bloggs can can go and do that? And and what's the actual tolerance of what he's putting in versus what he's actually digesting? Is that needed? That's an it's all an individual basis, right? But I think we've got to take it with a grain of salt, really, because we're not all um, high performance professional athletes to some degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's there's always the depends answer. Well, it depends what kind of athlete we are. But let's go off the basis that we're where um, what you just described, we're not pouring in the, the glucose every single session. Um, yep. And we're trying to build some some endurance base of the body being able to use fuel uh, from, from different sources rather than just uh, glucose. 
Yeah, yeah, that's great, Matt. Um, I do want to come back to the pre-race sort of carb loading, if you like, or lack of loading and just mm. explain a little bit more what I would suggest. But um, to your point, you know, you do have the Sam Longs out there. You've also got the Daniel Plews, you know, who does a marathon mm. on a gel. Um, so there is a lot of individual variation. And from my perspective, and someone else will have a different perspective, and that's totally fine, but I, um, I'm i more concerned, you know, the race is really important for the athlete. Importantly, though, is to keep them healthy. And there is just, you know, we're seeing more research sort of emerge from that age group population, which we haven't done a lot of research on really before, um, to show that, you know, when you sort of kick the carbs up in the diet, there is a subsection of that population that do end up with impaired glucose tolerance. And a lot of people think because they're endurance athletes, they're somewhat protected from metabolic health impairments because of their sport. But actually, when they chug in the carbs as an age grouper athlete who might be doing 15 hours of training a week, they're not they're not any more protected than, than anyone else, actually. And so I uh, spoke on my podcast to Philip Prince, who has run a number of sort of studies in that middle-aged uh, uh, men with lycra group. What do you call those men? Mammals, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which you're not middle age, I know, but probably I imagine a few of your listeners might be sort of my yeah. age, if you like. Um, you know, there are people who will not fare well in that um, with that type of diet. So I do care about uh, trying to to stay healthy whilst being able to sort of endure. Um, the the training and of course the racing so mm. I'm of the opinion that you know one yes everyone is different but given the fact that over 85 percent of endurance athletes will experience GI problems at least you know once during a race um, and certainly during training then if you can go for longer on less carbohydrate then that should be your ultimate goal, given the metabolic health issues I just described, and also the um, the GI issues that that we were talking about, and the endurance adaptations. Albeit, I just I wouldn't want anyone to think that what I was meaning was that we should all be in a calorie deficit and be in low energy availability across training and racing chronically. Mm -hmm. Like that is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we have to be low calorie. I'm just suggesting that we don't need to put in a hundred and 40 grams of carbs like the likes of Sam Long. Now, there is research to show that when you when you, um, when you you put in glucose and fructose, so you use different types of carbohydrate, you are able to absorb more. And I believe that there are studies showing you can absorb 120 grams of carbohydrate over a three-hour period um, with... with uh, with those different sort of carbohydrate um, uh, types, well, there's research to show that. I just don't know that it's necessary or mm. or even sort of desired. And one thing to note is that in the research, when they say that they've been doing, um, they've been showing that we can absorb high amounts of carbohydrate over long periods of time, that time limit that I just sort of mentioned, that three hours, is in research a long period of time. Whereas you are an athlete that might be out there. Um, I mean, Matt, you're out there for what, eight and a half hours or eight hours. Whereas, you know, a normal age grouper might be out there 
10 and a half, 11, 12, 14 hours. So, yeah. so that makes quite a big difference to how the gut is going to handle that amount of carbohydrate over a, a large period of time. And then I'll um, finish off by saying that, you know, everyone is an individual, absolutely, but no one's got anything to lose from trying to get more fat adapted and to try and doing it on less carbohydrate. Yeah, some amazing points there, Mickey. I mean, um, we're trying to raise the bar, right, of of the the fat oxidation and and trying to pull that up to match an intensity level, which is desirable on the day that we we don't have to drop our intensity level too much because that's ideally what we don't want is slowing down, hey. Yeah. And um, yeah, that whole amount is just it's phenomenal to watch some of these numbers that come out and then um, people trying to replicate that or thinking that that's okay when when there's a lot of um, you know, it hasn't been practiced basically and it's an unknown. Um, and then yeah. we walk out with, with the with GI distress, et cetera. So, and we go, we, we wonder why. So, um, yeah. And can yeah. I also add, Matt, that, you know, like the, the to emulate a, um, you know, a, a pro and someone who is just like top of their game, like, though, like, I, just, I do think that there is something genetically different from the likes of the, the um super top athletes in sport you know and so i believe that they are just like they can they can probably train harder they can recover faster they can do everything to like you know one or two levels up so so Mm -hmm. i i do also think that there's something about them that allows them to uh, experience less gi problems by having that you know uh, an absolute ton of carbs i don't know it's just just what i think yeah, how do we know what that amount is? Like, is it based off feel? Is it based off, you know, you get to the point where you start to feel on the edge of that that bonk and you, you you go, actually, I need some calories here. Like, how do we, how could we measure what that number is of, let's say, if we're just talking um, carbohydrates in, how do we know what that number could could look like? Yeah, so, so obviously we've got the theoretical numbers that you and I have been talking about in research, um, that 90 to 120 grams of carbs an hour. We've also got um, the more sort of moderate um, uh, recommended amounts, which is where I tend to sit, like 50 to 60 grams of carbs an hour for for triathlon, potentially lower even depending on the size of the athlete and and, and also their propensity towards GI distress. Um, But generally, so... Um, a couple of ways to answer your question. The first thing is, how do we know how how little we can go on? Um, Or maybe how fat adapted you are, and you didn't quite ask this question, but I'll just start there, is if you can go out for a training run or ride and just use sugar-free electrolytes and some water or just water and or if you're a runner, you just stop at some sort of water station along the way and, you know, grab a few sips because let's face it, that's what runners do. Um, if you if you can do that for like two and a half or three hours, then that tells me you're pretty fat adapted, actually. If you are out for a run and you can't go beyond 60 minutes without needing carbohydrate, that tells me you really need to work on your fat adaptation. And I would say the same for a cyclist if they're out there for an hour on the bike 
at a fairly moderate pace and they start to feel like they're bonking, then they're certainly in need of working on their fat adaptation. So that's sort of that that element there. And then the honestly, like how to work out how, how many carbs you can get away with, it sort of comes down to um, taking in an amount of carbohydrate where the last gel you take, you start feeling sick. Well, then you could probably mm-hmm. tolerate one less than that last gel that you just took in um, yeah. for that training sort of environment and, and length. Um, but, I mean, I guess I I generally sort of set it at a bit of a fixed number and then go, hey, look, let's start with this. 50 grams of carbs an hour. Let's get it from these couple of sources. Let's see mm. how you go. And then we can sort of evaluate it. Um, yeah. So to be honest, uh, Matt, for the likes of the athletes that don't have access to equipment that allow them to show how many carbs of how many grams of carbs they oxidize or fat they oxidize you sort of do go a little bit on trial and error and it's a Mm. little bit of art rather than science i think those are fantastic guidelines to to majority of our population that a don't have access to getting into a lab or or actually b just you know we don't have the resources to get in there and 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 the cost etc so um, yeah, those are some awesome guidelines for for everyone to really be able to to follow and and have some sort of segue as well. Um, I think you know you, you should be working with your coach, whoever that is, to to figure that out. And and you're on the same page, really, in the same team working together. So you shouldn't really feel super deep in that whole uh, pit of yeah. trying to figure it out, right? Yeah, completely. And you know, like we talked about the Sam Longs, and obviously you've got the Dan Plus. Then you've got like the likes of Zach Bitter, you know, he's another SFIELDS mm. athlete ofs. And uh and he worked out his sweet spot to be about 40 grams of carbs an hour. Mm. Um, which and then he's out there running for, I mean, I think he did just did um um Havelina 100 in just over 13 hours or 1330 or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, he's and he's an athlete which has who has periods of low carb. And then he has periods of higher carb to meet the demands of his training. Uh, but then during the race, he, he, you know, he's sort of set on that 40 grams of carbs, which some people would argue is too low. But of course, he trialed higher and it didn't sit right in his gut. So who's to say that his performance would be better if he took on board more carbs? I mean, an uninformed person might say that, but that's certainly not what um, what I read mm. from it. Yeah, 100%. And it, it actually speaks extremely true to that S-Fuels motto of right fuel, right time, hey, around training yep. and race and racing. So, um, yeah, totally. Cool. Awesome info on that. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'd like to move on to, I know, a favorite topic of yours, uh, protein. Yes. And, um, I was actually speaking with Grant and he said, I mentioned I was, I was talking to you. He said, well, the first thing he says, make sure you, you get her to talk about protein. She has to talk about protein. And, and I know it's a favorite topic of yours. So um, let's let's just dive straight in there. I mean, I know there's a lot of talk around requirements of nutrition and, and protein particularly. And we're talking yeah. just generally speaking. Um, and obviously we want to get into the, does it differ with um, endurance athletes and and um, is it muddled there or is it is it fixed? Is it the same? So yeah, can we just touch on that if that's if that's the topic yeah amazing Matt and the way that you um you mentioned Grant and the way that you said 
way that you said that just totally reminded me of him. So it's almost like you were bringing in your um, sort of inner grant when you asked that question. Um, protein. Is, so the thing with protein, which I probably don't need to go into why protein is important, because I think most people understand its role in recovery and repair of muscle tissue. Yeah. Uh, and probably if someone is eating enough calories, then they're likely to hit their protein requirements uh, for the most part. This is what we see. Like if you're eating three and a half, four thousand calories, you're probably getting a, a decent hit of protein. But we know that a lot of athletes are probably uh, under, in, in some instances, maybe under eating or just they don't have the distribution of their protein rights. So they think they're they're meeting their protein requirements because they're having a protein shake at breakfast and, and a chicken salad at lunch, but they are still running short on protein because we need about double what the recommended dietary intake level would have us uh, sort of believe we need. So recommended dietary intake, uh, generally speaking, is 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight, um, which is woefully low. Mm. Athlete requirements are probably double that as a minimum 1.6 grams per kg body weight a day um, and if you are someone who is that sort of uh, that's the minimum for an endurance athlete but I would say actually around two grams per kg body weight per day is a better guideline for most endurance athletes who are out there training sort of 15-16 hours a week and it isn't just for the sort of aforementioned repair and recovery benefits of protein but you know as an athlete and as a as an age grouper you sort of you have a, there's a fine balance between eating enough but not eating too much and therefore yeah. sort of gaining weight and for some they might not think that this would necessarily be an issue but I speak to so many athletes who start training for an endurance event and gain weight and it's not muscle it's actually fat because their appetite um sort of exceeds the number of calories that they actually need because a lot of the training is done at that lower intensity and that's the type of training that can really ramp up appetite um, and protein is the most satiating nutrient out of all three of them it's the one that helps keep you fuller for longer so therefore you are less likely to overeat uh, given the amount of training that you're that you're doing so protein helps regulate the appetite as well which is another sort of key benefit um, I would say that the way that we eat protein is largely distributed near the end of the day for a lot of us so I mentioned the protein shake and the chicken salad like that same person might sit down to you know a 200 250 gram steak at night and that, that in itself is absolutely sufficient in terms of the amount of protein at that meal um, but what we need to do is consider the, the protein amounts during the day as well because what I've sort of described is probably half the amount of protein that someone might require so even when we think we're getting enough protein if I look at you know and I've I've met very few athletes that get enough protein across the course of a day. And that's really we need, where we need to sort of draw our attention to is that sort of breakfast and lunch and, of course, snacks as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that, um, yeah, the suggested amount versus, versus actually the reality of what we should. And then 
we're putting in, we're we're putting sport into that as well, and we we go actually we probably should be up again on top of that. So there's a huge comparison between the suggested and you know the two grads that we're talking about, um, and, and what you just mentioned. Um, I think yeah. the distribution the distribution across the day is a really important factor as well because you're right it can be more heavy towards the end of the day. Um, what are some possible you know what are some ways to, to try and balance that out a little bit better, especially if we're, if we're talking, you know, we're, we might have a fasted training session in the morning and that's typically, that rules that out of having a protein intake um, pre that session. But how could that look so after that, for example? Yeah, great question, Matt. So what you should be aiming for would be, so the important sort of times to get your protein in from that we know from research is sort of breakfast and dinner because at breakfast you are coming out of um an overnight fast um and then of course you've you might have trained on top of that so protein experts understand that that you know you're sort of in quite a catabolic state there so that is what you want to offset and you want to sort of kickstart that protein muscle sorry muscle protein synthesis response so breakfast is super important and most people listening to this podcast will probably need 40 to 50 grams of protein actually and it is a myth that you cannot um there is a myth that you can't absorb more than 30 grams of protein um at any one time and and that is actually just that it's a myth um so in order to meet your sort of protein requirements and set you up really well to have even energy across the day as well, then getting that 40 to 50 grams of protein, I think, is, is actually a really decent idea. And that might look like three scrambled eggs and a protein shake. Or it could look like uh, three eggs and half a cup of egg whites with a uh, um, some salmon or some leftover meat or some sausage or something added in. Uh, I do this thing where I do like oats and then I put egg whites in the oats and then I do some sort of protein drizzle on top. So instead of making a shake from the protein powder, I add a little bit of water, turns it into a bit of a runny paste and I put it on top. Sounds weird, but it's actually quite delicious. <laughs> um, um, or it could be some sort of like breakfast for um uh, sorry dinner for breakfast you know where you're just having leftovers and mm. I haven't mentioned carbs but a great time to have carbs is after that training session so you can um replenish any sort of like liver glycogen or muscle glycogen sort of stores um and particularly if you've got training again within eight hours getting in carbs at breakfast is a is a great idea but you do of course want to balance that with the protein that I just sort of mentioned you do have to be a little bit strategic because, you know, two eggs, po two poached eggs at a cafe will not cut it. So if that's what your usual breakfast routine is, then I definitely suggest having one and a half scoops of um, protein powder in addition to that. So you're sort of hitting that mark. Um, the older you are, Matt, the more protein you need in a meal to maximize that muscle protein synthesis response. Mm. If you are college age, if you are sort of early 20s, mid 20s, how old are you, Matt? Uh, I'm 31. Yeah, cool. So even probably 31. Um, yeah. You're probably sweet on about, you know, 25 to 30 grams of protein as in, in terms of maximizing that muscle protein synthesis response. Whereas right. someone like Grant and me and someone older than Grant will probably need more around that sort of uh, 40 to 50 grams of 
protein. And that's something that has been studied in literature. There's no sort of age cutoff. It's, so if I'm saying at this age, it's more of a suggested sort of increase, if, if you like. Because the other thing, just to be real geek about it, is that protein is, is typically um, studied as an isolate. So they look at muscle protein synthesis response in isolation to other uh, nutrients. So someone is just having like a whey protein isolate or, you know, something that doesn't have other nutrients around. But, you know, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we eat meal, we eat meals, we don't eat sort of nutrients. So it hasn't really considered that food matrix. Um, So, so that's why I think 40 to 50 grams would be a good uh, sort of thing to aim for. And I have a heap of recipes that, um, get you up at around that 30 to 40 grams at least um, of protein on my website. Um, And for lunch, you know what? If you eat meat, it's actually super simple because 150 grams of cooked meat has about 50 grams of protein in it. And that isn't actually a lot lot of meat if, you know. Mm. So um, if you get a salad out at some sort of like uh, fast food place like Tank or Subway, then I would ask them to double the, the protein of of the meal that they're providing you i would also you know if you run to supermarket then you know you're going to the deli it's pretty easy to ask them for 150 grams of cooked meat um that would pretty much sort of uh fit the bill for be it Mm. if you're having a wrap if you're having a salad that kind of thing awesome yeah that's that's some amazing information there i guess i just touch on you talked about um like protein for for breakfast and typically i know there's a lot of people out there that go they train on an empty stomach or it might just be that they have a coffee beforehand um and there's intention and reason behind that but you've also mentioned that um it's it's actually not a bad thing to be having some protein first thing in the morning before a training session right yeah yeah so and it really and to my mind, it comes down to a few things. One is the um, the intensity, I suppose, of the session. Not that, you know, it, it's almost, protein doesn't assist performance, like doesn't make you go harder or, or go faster or anything like that. Albeit yeah. maybe psychologically it can actually help. And I, I'm not going to discount that psychological aspect. Um, but you are, you know, depending on the leanness of the athlete, this is, and their, um sort of level of fat adaptation I think those two things might dictate um, to some degree whether or not you should have something before training Um, the next thing is obviously the the intensity of the training session or the duration of the training session so Mm -hmm. I very seldom suggest people go out for long periods of time like if they're going out on a long trail run of like two plus hours um, then I would suggest they have something on board just because you are breaking down muscle and you do run the risk of low energy availability that could impact on bone health and your ability to recover after the session. Now, that, um, you know, a fasted training session, to my mind, is neither here nor there, actually. Like, Mm. I think there's a lot of talk that women in particular should never do any training fasted and, you know, it's detrimental to hormones and, and, and things like that. I think it's an individual thing. And I think that chronic low energy availability is not a good idea for any athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that that a, an easy 45 minute jog without food on board is, is going to 
really make any difference to to anyone in, in terms of, of that. Um, and it's lastly, probably, what I, sorry, oh, you sorry. go. Oh, I was just going to say that also, as we were discussing earlier, you can still get those endurance adaptations when you have protein before going out training, actually, mm. um, because it's the absence of glucose which is important in that in that case. I was just going to say it's almost a bit of a, a, a calorie top, right? A calorie top up, and it's a good way of doing it with protein. Yes, 100%. And that's actually what I was going to mention as well. Thanks, Matt, is that, you know, you've got sort of protein requirements that you have to meet within a day as well, you know. So um, it is it's as much of a protein top up as it is a, a calorie top up. So that's such a great point. Yeah, nice. Cool. Um, perfect. You talked about um, the leanness of an athlete and it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a topic um, in endurance sport and, um i heard actually you and dan talking about it on i think your podcast where you had him on and um talking about the leanness of a of of an athlete and obviously it's advantageous to be um lighter to some respect but um i'd just love to talk to you about um weight loss essentially and i know you've you pump out quite a bit of info on your own platforms around this and how to do this uh correctly and i guess um, in a sustainable manner that's actually healthy for us um, rather than just uh, a quick fix and yeah, yeah in, in the right manner basically is is what I want to talk to you about I mean um, there, there's the calorie deficit um, style approach which for longevity is is not really sustainable and and what happens as a result of that um, but yeah I'd just love to get your take on that yeah, great question, Matt, because a lot of people come into the sport wanting to improve their body composition as much as they do um, sort of training for a race, you know, like they sort of want to look look the part as much as, as anything else. And and for what it's worth, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's that's totally cool to, to have body composition goals too. Um, the thing is, though, is that you can't chase two rabbits at once. So if you want to improve your body composition and lose weight, yet you want to perform, it actually makes it really difficult to, to do both well, actually. Uh, because as you mentioned, a calorie deficit, which is required in order to drop body fat, that is difficult to sustain when training ramps up and when you're in those key training phases. So my um, preference for an athlete is to, um, if they have an off season, that is the time to um, look at dropping body fat and dropping body weight um, or in the sort of early sort of base training phase where fueling isn't as important and you can sort of um, utilize the the training if you like to help mm -hmm. build that calorie deficit um, in as well um, I would never drop calories too low and I think this is one of the mistakes that athletes make is that they might read online that you know you need a 1500 calorie diet in order to lose weight but that's not the case necessarily with an athlete that's sort of the general mm. population recommendation um and for what it's worth how relevant or how true that is of the general population is like another um an, a, another topic altogether but that's often the recommendation you see you know if you're a woman 1500 if you're a guy 2000 but mm. you you can lose weight with less of a calorie deficit like 
So essentially how to even figure that out is, I mean, we can absolutely go into it, but once you know the calories that you're taking on board to maintain your weight, then from there you can make um, some sort of adjustment. So you're running at a deficit of say 300 calories as opposed to 500 or 700 calories. Um, And therefore that's just not as aggressive. And then over time you will see improvements in, in body composition. I yeah. also recommend that you um, that we that we protect training and you get what you need from training, so you're able to recover well. And when you do protect training and eat around training, then your appetite response later in the day is also much more favorable to fat loss because you're not so hungry. Whereas if you go into every training session fasted and then you extend that fast beyond training, so you're skipping breakfast or something for fat loss well, then you can end up with this just real appetite drive later in the day, which then makes it more likely that you're going to overeat and then, you know, wake up feeling full and then that sort of cycle repeats itself. So so I like to put in calories around training. I like to support training with calories where required, uh, which might be anywhere from 150 to 300 calories every couple of hours, depending on the athlete. Um, and then we make adjustments later on in the day where recovery isn't as important because when you are in a calorie deficit that it's the recovery from training that that can be um, uh, impaired so we really want to protect that yeah there's some awesome stuff you brought up there I mean um, I think you know performance of what what we're doing is what we're after and and you know, we get to the start line and we want to get to the finish line and performance is what we're striving for, but that is totally hindered when we start introducing factors like uh, what we've just talked about. I mean, very very briefly, I did a podcast with um, Grant around an experience that him and I went through. And um, actually last summer for me, um, I got sick and got crook and over the, over Christmas and summer periods, about three weeks there and still continue to eat probably the amount of um, food that I was when I was training heavy. And I, I just, I wasn't training the same amount of hours. And all of a sudden we'd probably put on, uh, I think I put on about eight or nine kgs across that Christmas period. So I got the hard and fast word from Grant going, actually, you know what, we're going to take a two week carnivore approach here, uh, re- restricting calories, um, but the key for that for us was that we were also making adaptations to training. So there was no intensity. It was all um, aerobic style training. It was training that was based around how much energy I had on the day. And we had a start and finish date. And, and we knew what that was. There was a clear objective to, to drop some weight during that period. Um, yeah. But I think the two really, and that's what I, that's what I kind of stress to, people that um, I talked to about this, it's the two have to work in parallel, you know, what you're doing, yeah. what you're, what you're eating on a day-to-day basis and the training has to be matched to some respect in that. Um, so yeah, I hear you on the whole, you've got to plan that in an, in an off season period. It's not like I was, um, I had a race the following week, you know, um, so yeah. it, was, it was just needed at, at that point in time. And um, yeah, so that's, it's interesting to to hear your view on that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, I understand why um, an athlete has that mindset that they can do both things or has the mindset that they should 
avoid calories run training because they will burn more fat. Whereas, you know, you and I have discussed that you do get a ramp up in fat oxidation when you have, you know, when you either have a fasted training session or you or you sort of um, get rid of glucose or carbohydrate, but fat oxidation isn't the same as fat loss. And mm. fat loss requires that calorie deficit. And just so often there are people who, where the pendulum just swings from fasting to to binging actually and then and then using their training as the sort of reason why they're so hungry because I've trained so much whereas yeah to a large part that is why you're hungry but it's more because you avoided having food earlier in the day you know like there is a level of metabolic adaptation that occurs when you become efficient at what you're doing in your sport. You know, like you, Matt, aren't going to burn the same number of calories as potentially someone else who is out there doing the same thing, but they're less experienced. So they have to work harder to, to sort of achieve the same result as you. Like you'd, you'd be a lot more efficient at what you're doing. And efficiency means you burn less calories, which from a fat loss perspective is... Mm a bit of a, you know, it's not really what you want, but that's, you know, but from a training perspective, it's awesome because it means you're doing less work and therefore it's, you know, not as hard and you're becoming fitter. So it's all yeah. of those things sort of come into it too. Yeah. I, I, I love how you, you're very active on social media and um, I often look at, you know, your, some of your stories that go up and see you document quite heavily as to what you eat personally and, and what, what you put up there. And um, it's just fascinating to, to observe that, to be honest. Um, and you're very open around what you do put on, you know, like there's always the, yeah. I love the ketchup. I love that. <laughs> always, always, Matt. <laughs> always. So, I mean, yeah. it just, yeah. And I think there's that huge sort of myth around restriction of calories if we're looking to be that optimal high performance athlete that that's lean and 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 fast but um it doesn't it, it forms in the the nutrients that we're putting in you know yeah it does and you know the other thing which um because you know so obviously i mentioned protein and i talked about those two grams of protein per kg body weight like if someone has body composition goals that protein requirement actually goes um goes up so it is mm. more around you're if you're wanting to drop body weight and you're an athlete, like those protein requirements are 2.2, 2.4, even 2.8 grams per kg body weight. So they're significantly higher to help preserve that lean muscle tissue as you are dropping the calories, because that is the thing. Like when you drop calories and lose weight, you, it's, you need to help preserve the muscle that that you do have um but that also helps keep you satisfied and so it allows you to feel fuller on a smaller number of calories so that's a real benefit mm. and then the other thing is that um, um you've obviously you just mentioned that you see what i do on social like i'm a volume eater like i like a good amount of food and if you are someone who is trying to lose weight and you're eating a sandwich and then you're wondering why you're so starving well one, well, you're probably missing out on a lot of the vegetable fiber that can help keep you full. So loading up your plate with non-starchy vegetables, eating slowly, um, chewing properly also allows you to feel fuller on less calories as well. So, um, you know, there are definitely strategies with the food that you eat that helps um, 
um, help to make that calorie deficit a little bit more livable. And the other thing is where you get your carbohydrate from. So if you focus your carbs on things like potato, uh, sweet potato, fruit, and like legumes, like red kidney beans and chickpeas and lentils, then you're going to also feel fuller because there's a lot more fiber in those foods as well. So that's another um, benefit. Yeah, interesting you touched on the increased protein. Um, if we're trying to hold on, which which most of the time we are, we're, we're trying to lose that uh, fat loss, but also be smart about how we do that and maintain, if not build slightly, that um, lean muscle mass and doing that through actually what you think wouldn't be as obvious of increasing the protein uh, to like that 2.2, 2.4 that you talked about um, was is, is a key fact I think is worth highlighting. Yeah, totally. And you know what, Matt, it's not as hard as what people think. You know, it's, I chat to people who, when we do a, a nutrition audit, they're having 80 to 90 grams of, of protein a day. And this is, these are males, you know, like, so, mm. and then to tell them that they need 180 to 200 grams of protein, and they're like, how on earth am I going to get that? You know, like the amounts that we discussed, once you adjust to putting more on your plate and, and which is again counterintuitive for someone trying to drop weight because they're yeah. almost thinking they're needing to reduce down. But um, once they adjust, um, they really notice what you know how beneficial it it sort of feels. And a tip for anyone that um, uh, two tips actually. The first one is is to mix your protein types if you feel quite satiated on a small amount of protein, but you know you need to to eat more. So if you can't, if you can literally not stomach more than, you know, 80 grams of cooked chicken, then chuck some ham in there as well. And that'll, mm. you know, like help you get more um, protein in and you'll, you'll be able to sort of tolerate it a bit more as you adjust. Um, the second tip is if you have been eating low protein for an extended period of time, you literally might not be able to digest it as well. And digestive enzymes uh, or raw apple cider vinegar um, before a meal can help your body just stimulate digestion because that's actually a real issue with some people. Yeah, some really, yeah, some good points there. Um, and and it's, it's the same thing that's applicable in so many different things, isn't it? It's like you can't just go and bam, introduce something. There's, there's got to be a progression and it's got to be, um, it's got to be diligent about the way that it's applied. Yeah, for sure. And and actually uh, another point which I think is worth mentioning is that if you're not someone that eats meat, um, then you'll probably need a um, an essential amino acid powder alongside the protein you do eat because it is the, the leucine amino acid, the, the amino acid that we uh, need to help maximize muscle protein synthesis, it's leucine. And you can't get the same amount of leucine in um, those vegetable sources like tofu, for example. Um, mm. You need to eat like 300 grams of tofu to get the a sort of a similar amount of leucine. So yeah. um, instead, because that's very difficult for most people, um, instead, if you have an essential amino acid drink alongside that meal, that is just going to boost that whole um amino acid profile so that would be my recommendation and they're very easy to pick up those essential amino acid drinks from like sprint fit or or nz muscle or chemist warehouse that kind of thing yeah nice awesome um that moves quite nicely into our last i guess 
um, the female's perspective in endurance sport and, and the nutritional requirements that set uh, males and females apart in particular. What, what's, the, what's the goal there for you if you're going the main difference nutritionally from males to females in endurance sport? What, what would you pinpoint as, as top of the list there? Yeah, um, so so it's super interesting, Matt, because there's a lot of, like, as you and I discussed, like, there's a lot of talk that women cannot train in a fasted state, and it's super dangerous for them to even sort of consider it. And while I don't buy into that, um, I do think we do have to be more considered around fasted training um, for extended periods of time for women because women are are more sensitive to that lack of food signal so mm. and when I when I say that what I mean is that they are more likely to um, uh, experience sort of hormone disruptions or low energy availability so what we know from research is that men can drop calories further for longer um, than women can before they start experiencing symptoms of low energy availability which are, I mean, the super obvious ones are um, if you skip a period as a woman or um, that's, you know, that's a super obvious one. But even um, even sort of disrupted sleep or real irritability, um, things like that, which would indicate that you are sort of in this sort of elevated stress response. So, so whilst a fasted training session is not a big deal, it doesn't have to be a big deal. You just want to be mindful that, um, if you aren't meeting your overall calorie requirements across a day and you're training in a fasted state, like um, all of the time, then maybe one way to correct that would be actually the putting in food before training. Um, and this is particularly if you are a leaner athlete, which a lot of um, women triathletes or ultra runners are. Um, so that is one thing which I think we need to be mindful of. Um, the second thing is that that you and I were just discussing calorie deficits and trying to improve body composition. Um, something to consider as a female is that uh, during the luteal phase for a lot of people, they do get increased cravings. And in fact, energy expenditure does go up. Uh, it's, you know, there's not good research to show, you know, there's no magic number, but what I would say is that if you are pushing a calorie deficit to improve body composition, then I would actually go on a diet break during that luteal phase. So mm. even seven days before just lift your calories up eat more and eat more good food like I don't think that um you know going that you know adding in a whole heap of junk food because of cravings is a good idea actually but I do think that ensuring you've got good balanced meals you might lift your cup I mean I, I in terms of the type of food you would eat I have to say you know, women are a little bit more insulin resistant during the luteal phase. So we don't carbohydrate, we don't tolerate carbohydrate as well. Uh, yeah. So, and we aren't able to access glycogen as well. So in fact, this just really, to my mind, um, mm. speaks to the idea of getting better fat adapted, to be honest, but yeah. lift calories, lift fat calories, have good sources of carbohydrate, like, um, um, the ones that I was discussing, ones which also have nutrients in, so you're also getting more nutrients, more nourishing. Um, mm. And and then with regards to their um, symptoms around their diet, this might be in more detail than what you're after, Matt, but what I will say is 
that if you do experience a lot more premenstrual symptoms around, you know, bloating, abdominal pain, um, tender breasts, and all of and and those sort of quite and really heavy periods, then I would suggest uh, looking at getting professional advice for dropping out dairy and gluten as two of the primary sort of triggers for inflammation that can make a big difference to symptoms around your cycle. Um, so those would be two things. And then also, of course, look at iron intake because uh, if you do have a heavy period, you're probably losing a lot more iron than, than what you think. So you might even so regularly assess your iron status, particularly if you've been low iron in the past. So that might look like every six months um, and, and then take an iron supplement if you need to. And there are protocols around the best way to do that. So, so these are sort some more sort of specifics for a female athlete to consider. Yeah, nice. I love that you mentioned lifting the calories during that menstrual cycle. I mean, um, funnily enough, actually, um, Hannah Berry um, put out a piece um, yes. last day or so. I don't know whether you saw that. And it was just talking I about did. His, her, uh, yeah, it was talking about her cycle of how she worked in with her coach of, her, of specifically her performance side of things with her training cycle and how they, they rotated on kind of a three week one week basis, three week hard yeah. and one week easy, um, just yeah. because that she needed that easy time. So it's 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 uh, yeah, extremely you know going lifting the calories. We can't access the glucose during that that period and roll through a cycle that suits. And it doesn't have to be like that for everyone. But that's just um, it was interesting that she she brought that up. Yeah, I agree, Matt. And and I think to your point, you're right. Like everyone is, and, and this is where the research is at right now. So regardless of of what you hear and who, you know, what you hear out there on social media, the science doesn't support um, any blanket changes to training just because you're a female. What mm. the science supports is listening to your body and auto-regulating, which is exactly what Hannah said that she did. And I did get her, I'm on her email list and I'm, I'm loving Hannah's stuff on social. Like she's really just sort of um, blossomed over the last year and it's been really great to see. Um, and and so, yeah, if you so you just want to listen into your body and how you feel, because some women are totally fine in their luteal phase, uh, yeah. and notice no difference. Whereas some women are terrible around ovulation. So that's those are the kind of things that you want to sort of check in with, and that is um, where the science is at right now. Yeah, I mean, it, again, that just highlights the the need for that open communication between who, who you're working with around designing some sort of program or structure or platform whatever it is for for that individual right and it's just it's got yeah. to be an open communication as to as to what's going on really totally agree yeah nice hey um mickey that's i seriously you're so easy to talk to you've got so much info and so much good information that that to be honest is so realistic as well and very easy you just put it in a, a manner that's very easy to to articulate and understand so um hey thank you so much for coming on it's been been awesome chatting away matt i am so pleased that you asked me to come on your podcast and so it was an absolute pleasure and likewise i could talk about this stuff for hours so <laughs> yeah so um it was real fun thank you awesome hey um yeah safe travels i know you're not you're not actually in new zealand at the moment just tell us really where you are at the moment 
at the moment, Matt, I am in Scottsdale, Arizona for a meeting that's going to take place uh, Thursday and Friday. So a super quick trip, but um, super fun as well. And after this, Matt, because it is 4.15, I will be um, Google mapping a brewery and going and um, continuing my global beer tour, which is what I love to do when I'm away from New Zealand, <laughs> just to go and visit microbreweries, yeah. Epic. Make sure you document it. As I say, I love I love your uh, your social posts, and you, you're definitely not afraid to chuck out that you have some chips and beer as well, which is amazing <laughs> and awesome. So, um, yeah, well done on that front. But again, Mickey, thank you so much. Um, have a safe travel back home, and I uh, look forward to catching up at some point um, in New Zealand. Awesome, Matt. Thanks so much.